The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. The Lord's table is the opportunity for every believer to take a few moments to stop and reflect upon one thing that we all hold in common, and that is our salvation. Every individual, every human being is born in a state of sin. We're born with a sin nature, and at the instant of physical birth to that sin nature is imputed the sin of Adam. As a result, we are born sinners and under condemnation, condemnation of eternal punishment if it were not for the fact that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins. Christ paid the penalty for our sins as a substitute. He went to the cross and died, and while he was on the cross, all of our sins were imputed to him. All sins, past, present, and future, every sin, no matter how horrible, no matter how heinous you may think it is, every single sin of the worst sinner, worst criminal ever existing in human history were fully and completely paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. In our eyes, we often think that sin is relative, that there are some sins that are worse than others, some sins that aren't as bad as others. But in the eyes of God, all sin is a violation of his character and a violation of his absolute righteousness. And every sin, no matter how small or minor it may seem, renders the sinner guilty and under condemnation. Remember, the sin that caused all this was nothing more than eating a piece of fruit and disobedience to God. certainly wasn't anything as heinous as, as uh, child abuse or genocide or any of the other things that people think of when they think of horrible, horrible sins. The sin itself is doing something in violation of the standard of God. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every sin so that we can have salvation. And all that is required of us is that we simply accept it as a free gift, just faith alone in Christ alone. It's simply a matter of accepting that as a free gift. So we always come to the Lord's table to be reminded of the fact that all that we have is due to God's grace, and that began at the cross. The Lord's table is for anyone who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord's table is not to be restricted, and it is for anyone who can, uh, who is here not restricted by church membership or any other human factor. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer, though, to make sure that we are in fellowship. Paul warned the Corinthians that they were under discipline, because they had come to the Lord's table lightly and were taking advantage of God's grace. And he warned them that they were to examine themselves to make sure that they were, in fact, in fellowship at the time that they came to the Lord's table. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and I'm going to ask the deacons to come forward during that time. Let's uh, bow our heads together and have the deacons come forward to serve the Lord's table.
night before he went to the cross, our Lord celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples. During the meal, he took the unleavened bread. It's unleavened because leaven represents sin. And he was impeccable. So the unleavened bread that the Jews had been eating since the original Passover in 1446 B.C. had always looked forward to and anticipated the coming of a perfect Savior, a Savior who was perfect in his humanity. Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is given as a substitute for you. Take and eat. I'm going to ask Mike Rico if he would return thanks for the cup, please.
Jesus then took the cup, which was the third cup in the meal, called the cup of redemption, and he said, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. As often as you drink it, do so in remembrance of me. Let's all stand together and turn to hymn number 246. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved, through faith and that not of yourselves, It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's open in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you that you have revealed your will to us in your word, that you have explained to us the mechanics of the spiritual life. You have made it clear to us not only how we are saved, but how we are to grow in the spiritual life, that you have given us the provision for that, and that both the salvation and the growth of our spiritual life are based on grace. Now, Father, as we continue our study this morning, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that that we study, the Holy Spirit would make them clear to us, and that we would be responsive. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 
1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, and we are studying the doctrine of reciprocal love, which we began last time. The doctrine of reciprocal love. Now, this is an important concept because the scriptures make it clear that not only, I mean, make it clear that our love for God and our love for one another is based on an understanding and appreciation for what took place at the cross. Again and again, we have seen that love to be understood must be understood by going first to the cross. It is at the cross that we understand what real love is all about, not from our experience, not from our feelings, not from our emotions, but from the cross. First John chapter 3, verse 18, make, or verse 17 makes it clear, excuse me, verse 16, by this we know love because he loved us and he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our life for the brethren. Now, John expands on this in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, where we read, We love him because he first loved us. Last time we began our study of this, and we saw that the phrase is not complete in many modern translations because of a textual problem that crept in, in the early history of the transmission of the New Testament, that in the process of copying the documents, copying the New Testament from one copy to another, sometimes words entered in, sometimes words were left out, and yet we haven't lost the original because we have over 5,000 manuscripts and fragments of manuscripts of the New Testament. The problem is that in comparing these manuscripts, how do you determine what was there originally? Is this a an error of omission or is this an error of addition? Did some manuscripts just add him or did other manuscripts delete him? And last time I stated that there are basically two views to handle uh, these kinds of textual problems. One is that the oldest manuscripts, and by those that's usually um, related to a family of manuscripts called the Alexandrian manuscripts, and that is because they are found in North Africa in the area of Egypt, the Alexandrian manuscripts, and these all date to the 3rd to 4th century. And the primary ones were the, uh, the abbreviations. You use a, an olive. That indicates Codex Sinaiticus that was discovered by uh, Count uh, von Tischendorf uh, at the, uh, up at St. Catherine's Monastery on Mount Sinai. It's always a fascinating story because uh, he was up there spending the night looking at old manuscripts in their, in their library, and the monks had a pile of, uh, of paper that they were using to start the heaters with in the in the rooms. And as he flared one up, all of a sudden he saw this Greek writing on it and quickly put it out and started reading it and realized that it was a very ancient uh, copy of the New Testament. And they had no, the, the monks didn't have any knowledge of Greek, so they uh, had been burning this copy of the New Testament. Well, he uh, quickly recovered it and co- recovered most of it. And that was dated to about the 3rd century A.D. Then you had Codex Vaticanus, which was also discovered in the, in the Vatican, had been kept under wraps for 
for uh, many years, and when Samuel Tregellis went there, he virtually memorized it. And after he would go home each day, he would look at it, go home, and he would write down what he had memorized. And his his memorization was so good, it forced the Vatican to publish it. Then you have you have Codex uh, Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, and a couple of other manuscripts that all date from the third to fourth century. And so one view is oldest is better. The other view is that the majority of manuscripts, the reading that's in the majority of manuscripts is the best. That's called the majority text view. And this, it is the majority text view that I have a tendency to be more in favor of. I am not a textual critic, and there are many things that I need to learn about these things. I have read numerous works on both sides of the issue here. But I believe that there are good, there's good evidence that the majority of manuscripts, especially when you have several different what they call text types, uh, complement each other or agree. And so not only do you have a Byzantine text type that has the word uh, him in it or auton in the Greek, but also in the Western text type, uh, and that seems to indicate that that is the superior reading. So that is why we translate this as the King James and the New King James Version has it. We love him because he first loved us. If you don't have the him there, that is the direct object of the verb, then you're not exactly sure what the object is. Do we just love in general because he first loved us? Do we love others because he first loved us? Or do we love him? And contextually, the first thing the uh, hypothetical person says in uh, verse 20 is, I love God, supplying God as the object of the verb, which indicates that that is the point. So John states his premise in verse 19, and that is that our love for God is in response to his love for us. This is the beginning point for the doctrine of reciprocity. How did God first love us? I said I gave four reasons last week. We'll review those. First of all, the divine initiative of antecedent grace. Antecedent means that which precedes, that which comes first. And this refers to the undeserved merit of God that began in eternity past. It doesn't begin at the cross. It begins millions and millions of years before the cross at the Council of Divine Decrees. When God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit outline the entire uh, plan of salvation for the human race. And in the Council of Divine Decrees, the uh, plan of salvation, which is an exp- which is based on God's love for mankind, and in grace, which is the expression of His love, in grace God provides a solution to man's great problem, which is sin and spiritual death. So God loved us from eternity past. This doesn't begin in time. It doesn't begin when you were born. It began billions and billions of years ago when God and his omniscience knew that you would exist. He knew everything there was to know about you. He knew all your strengths, all your failures. He knew that you would be a sinner. He knew how rebellious you would be. Nevertheless, God loved you with a maximum amount of love. So antecedent refers to 
that which precedes, and the first point is God loved us before time began. Second point, the object of antecedent grace is fallen man. See, grace means undeserved merit, unearned favor. It it can't have perfect man as its object because Adam had perfect righteousness as God is perfect. When God created Adam, he created him in his image and likeness, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And in his likeness meant that Adam was created with perfect righteousness. It was an untested righteousness, but nevertheless, it was a perfect righteousness And so because Adam had perfect righteousness, God could freely love him and have a relationship with Adam because there was no sin involved in humanity. But once Adam sinned, then the human race fell. The human race is now lacking righteousness. And at that point, the human race becomes the object of God's grace because grace focuses on undeserved or unearned favor. Third point. The doctrine of reciprocal love expresses the mutual love relationship between God and the church age believer through the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. In reciprocal love, the believer responds to the perfect love of God in kind. So we have to understand, first of all, what God's love is. We have to understand what motivates God's love. We have to understand how God's love was expressed in human history and all that God's love did for us. That focuses first and foremost on salvation, which is one reason that uh, beginning on Wednesday night this week, we'll have a new series on the doctrine of salvation. This is sort not just a simple basic sort of lesson where we're focusing on one aspect of salvation or just covering it in an hour. This will probably be a two or three month study, sort of an intermediate basic, basic and beyond, we might say, uh, of salvation. And in that I want to deal specifically with some problems that are cropping up today what it means to believe, what it means to be saved, uh, questions about eternal security, questions about the nature of faith, and defining what faith is. So we will spend about, oh, three or four weeks on, I mean, three or four months on that, somewhere between 12 and 15 lessons, just a nice little package, something that will be easy to uh, put on a CD or just to put 10 or 12 tapes together and to give to somebody who is having difficulty understanding the dynamics of salvation. But the more we probe salvation, the more we probe what God did for us in our salvation, the more we are able to understand uh, all of the dimensions of his love, and then we respond to that in kind. So as we advance, as we learn to love the Lord by understanding doctrine related to salvation, we then move forward through other areas of the spiritual life, and the more we learn about God and all that he has done for us, the more we respond in gratitude, which is the uh, only true motivation in the spiritual life, the more we respond in gratitude and we learn to love him. We don't love him. We don't have real love for God even at the point of salvation. Now, you may think you do, and you may have a lot of gratitude because now you're going to spend eternity in heaven rather than in the lake of fire, but don't confuse gratitude with love. That's a good general principle, even when you're an adult. Never confuse gratitude with love. That's one way to get involved in a romantic relationship that will end up in in pretty devastating ways. 
gratitude is not love. A, a baby can begin to express a modicum of gratitude to its parents, but an infant cannot express love. An infant does not love because an infant doesn't really know its parents. It may have certain emotions and certain feelings, and but it's not real love. Not until there is some content there, not until there is some growth and maturity, and the love that an adult expresses for one's uh, parents is quite different from what we call love in a child. Uh, love in a child is often simply an expression of uh, gratitude or emotion or a response to kindness, and it is not what the Bible refers to as love. So love is something that grows and matures on the basis of knowledge and understanding. So we develop our love for the Lord through learning about salvation, all that he has done for us. We learn that at salvation God provided 40 things for us. We learn what those 40 things are, and that informs us of all that God has given us so that we can live the spiritual life and that we can handle whatever problems or difficulties come our way as we go through our life. So in point number three, we see that the doctrine of reciprocal love expresses that mutual love relationship between God and the church-age believer. And point number four, reciprocity uh, reciprocity results in love for one another. Reciprocity is going to result in love for one another. You can't get to the point of loving other believers, impersonal love for other believers, until you are developing a personal love for God. So that brings us to the next category in our understanding of reciprocal love. That's just four points by way of introduction under the, under the title, How Did God First Love Us? Point number, or the second category of the doctrine, knowledge of God precedes reciprocity. We have to understand that knowledge of God precedes reciprocity. We must learn to know God before we can love him. The more you learn about the relationship of knowledge to love, the better you will be in your human relationships and expressing love. So point number one. Point number one, if we humanize the love of God or emotionalize it, we will never understand love in this life. If you humanize or emotionalize love, if you try to take the love that you experience in your own frame of reference, love that you might have for a husband or wife, love that you might have for parents or children, love you might have for a favorite dog or a favorite cat, and try to extrapolate that to what it means to love God, then you'll never really understand love. You don't start with human experience and then move towards God. You start with God and then move towards human experience. Love in God is based on integrity. It is based on his perfect righteousness and his love. See, in John, we have seen two great statements summarizing the character of God. The first is that God is light. The second is that God is love. Now, light emphasizes his perfect righteousness and his absolute justice. Uh, God is love emphasizes his integrity as it is expressed toward others. So love is integrity toward others. Now, that it's very difficult to define love. I've wrestled with it for years. There's lots of different ways that, that 
you can that people attempt to do it, and I find that most of them fall short. I think the best definition I've seen so far in love is that love seeks the absolute best for its object. Love seeks the absolute best for its object. Now, with God, the only, you know, the concept of best is a value judgment. You have to have some sort of criteria, some sort of scale of values in order to make the determination that something is better or something is best. Now, with God, you have an absolute scale of values based on his righteousness, which is the standard of his character, and justice, which is the application of that character. Now, when that is expressed toward others, whether it is expressed in terms of the relationship between father and son, Son and Holy Spirit, or Father to Holy Spirit, when it's expressed between the members of the Trinity, it is still an expression of that that righteousness and justice, what is best toward its object. It is not something that is based on emotion. See, if you look up the word emotion, well, this is where we have trouble is because human language is just faulty at this point. If you look the term love up in any dictionary, look it up in the Oxford English Dictionary, look it up in Webster's Third International Dictionary, it defines it as, a, as an emotion, as something that is fluid, flexible, changeable, something that, that uh, uh, it may be there one day, may not be there the next day. Well, that certainly doesn't fit the idea of God. Emotion is also a difficult concept because emotion itself is a fluid concept. It's a changeable concept. Uh, emotion is often affected by all kinds of different circumstances. It can be affected by external circumstances, such as uh, different events that happen in our life. We may uh, have somebody treat us a certain way and we respond negatively uh, with uh, emotional sins, or they may treat us in kindness and we may respond another way with a positive emotion. It may be just a result of internal uh, factors, such as uh, chemical balances. And, and we know from various studies that some days... Uh, and due to diet, due to exercise, due to a number of different factors, our emotions can change. We can wake up one morning and just kind of feel tired and down because we've had a, a rigorous week and we're operating on low energy. Or we can wake up one day and all of a sudden we have this great burst of energy and we're just feeling great and everything is wonderful in the world. We look at the world through rose-colored glasses. And so if we use concepts like emotion or or look to human look to a standard dictionary for love. We're going to run into problems when we apply that to God. Emotion is something that is always a response or reaction to some sort of external or internal factor. That's why emotions are continuously changing, since God in His character is is not is is immutable, that means he doesn't change. Since God in his character is immutable, then that means that anything that is happening in the creation does not affect the character, the attribute, the outlook, the orientation of God. Look at this diagram. Here we have the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I draw this circle around it. This circle represents the 
the identity, the person of God. For Let's use an anthropopathism and call it the mental attitude of God. Now, in our life, when we have some sort of external event or internal uh, situation, then that affects us, our mental attitude, to one degree or another. We are emotionally up or we're emotionally down. We react with anger, bitterness, or hostility, or we respond in kind, gentle emotions, something of that nature. But with God, he cannot, his mental attitude is continuously stable. He is unchangeable. That means events that happen in the creation do not change his joy. He does not increase or decrease in joy. He is always uh, perfectly happy and perfectly stable. Now, the Greek, another word that is used to describe emotion is from a Latin word, and it's the word passion. Now, if you take the root word of passion, which is P-A-S-S, you add the negative impasse, you come up with the a very early doctrine in, in the church called the impassibility of God. The impassibility of God. And impassibility is the the idea that God's mental attitude is not changed or affected by the actions or decisions of his creatures. That God's mental attitude is not affected by his actions, by, by the actions or decisions of his creatures. We cannot add to God's happiness, and we cannot take away from God's happiness. One reason for this is that God is omniscient, and as such, he knows all the knowable. He knows everything that will take place. He knows everything that could take place. So, because God knows everything that will take place, Nothing surprises God. Therefore, God has always known about our failures, and we can't fail in some horrible way that causes God to now be sad. Now, we may say that God is sad in an anthropopathic way because that expresses the idea that we have violated his righteous standard. Or if you please God or you do something that that is in obedience to God, then we'll say that that pleases God or makes God happy, but that's merely an anthropopathic way of saying it. That means we're using a human emotional term to express something in God in order to help us to understand God. All our knowledge of God, here's the creator, the creature here with a small c, and over here's the creator. All of our knowledge of God is by analogy. In the scripture we're told that God says that um, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. We can only know God by analogy. So there is something analogical there. We have emotion on our side, and there is something analogical on the side of God, but I think we run into major problems if we define that as emotion. So the first point in, knowledge, in the, the 
and the doctrine of knowledge of God preceding reciprocity, we have to avoid the mistake of humanizing the love of God. If we make it emotion, we will never understand God's love, and we will always have problems in the spiritual life. Point number two, when believers superimpose their own emotions and motivations on the love of God, they're guilty of humanizing the love of God. What happens is you project your own experience, your own background, your own ideas, your own frame of reference onto God. Rather than starting with God, you start with your own experience. But the Scripture says, by this we know God, that he sent his Son to die on the cross for us. Point number three, then, God is not emotion. God is not emotion, and he is not emotional. God the, the person of God is related to thought, he, related to knowledge. See, that's hard for us to understand because all our knowledge is learned. All our knowledge uh, grows and increases. It is derivative. We are born with an empty slate. The Greek philosophers called it a tabula rasa. We're, we're, we're born with an empty slate. We don't have any knowledge of anything. We begin to learn through our sense experience, and we begin to grow and develop. But all our knowledge is derivative. God's knowledge, though, is direct and intuitive. He's always known all the knowable. His knowledge doesn't increase. It doesn't decrease. It's a different kind of knowledge than our knowledge. So that is related to... Uh, his love for us. It's a different, completely different kind of, of knowledge and a different kind of, of love that is based on knowledge and therefore it is not something that we, is within our experience other than to go to the cross and evaluate the cross and understand the dynamics of the cross. That's why I said in the first hour I was talking about abstract theology. You can't just start with love and start talking about love divorced from the scripture you have to go when you talk about the love of god the bible always starts at the cross that is the example of god's love when you talk about salvation in the old testament it's almost always going to be couched in terms of god's deliverance of israel through the red sea you can't understand a a concept like love which is abstract simply by starting to talk about it and utilizing uh, man's own frame of reference and logic to try to break out the concepts. You have to start with the concrete expression of what God did in human history. That's what I mean by by concrete examples, not not an abstract or getting involved in some sort of abstract theology. We always have to guard against that because that's a typical uh, human tendency. God is, therefore, quite distinct from us, but nevertheless, since we are created in his image, there is something in us that is a finite replica of something in him. Now, in us, it's been affected by a number of different factors, and since, as I said earlier, emotion is a, is a very fluid concept in the human realm, so we need to be careful uh, not to call it Emotion. It is a love, though, that is based on perfect, direct knowledge. Therefore, point number four, knowledge of God must precede, for the creature, knowledge of God must precede reciprocal love for God. We must 
learn things about God before we can love God. We must know who God is. It's not just some abstract, generic term, God. You know, this is something we have to watch out for in what is called the civic religion of America. There's a lot of talk about God, but what God are they talking about? What do they mean by those three letters, G-O-D? You know, a lot of, you, you hear politicians a lot of times talk about God, but are they talking about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And it's very difficult for, to uh, listen to a politician who, on the one hand, will talk about, well, we need to have under God in the, uh, Pledge of Allegiance, but on the other hand, they don't want to support the nation Israel because the God that is supposed to be there is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that's a God who's made a covenant with Israel and a God who has a future for Israel. And see, you can't just use the term and abstract it and then use it in some kind of generic sense and, and have it uh, maintain any significance or meaning. So we have to uh, add content to that term. We have to learn something about who this God is. We have, to, and to do that, you have to start uh, at the cross. And when you start at the cross, you have to go back and understand why there is a necessity for the cross, and go back to creation. It's interesting that in several places in Acts, in Acts 14, for example, in Acts 17, when Paul is going to witness to the pagans, uh, the pagan Greeks, not the Jews who had a, an Old Testament background, but when he's going to witness to the Greeks, to the Gentiles who have no frame of reference in the Old Testament at all, when he starts to witness to them, all of a sudden he's talking about the God who made the heavens and the earth and the water and the seas and all that is in them. Why does he go back to creation? He doesn't even, in Acts 14, he doesn't even mention Jesus. He doesn't even mention the cross, because in order to understand the cross, in order to understand who Jesus was at the cross, and this isn't just some guy named Jesus of Nazareth who died on the cross, this is Jesus who is undiminished deity and true humanity united in one person. He's the God-man. Well, what God? If you're going to say he's the God-man, what God? Well, to understand the God that has to go to the cross, you have to that has to be based on the God of Abraham, I mean the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that God is the God who created all things, the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them. In Genesis chapter one, if you're talking about some other God, you've got a skewed view of who Jesus is, and you're not talking about the Jesus of the Bible anymore. So that's why you can't just. That's why this issue of creation and evolution is so crucial. Because if you're not talking about the creator God of Genesis 1 through 3, then you no longer have a necessity for a savior God like you have in the Gospels. You can't separate them. You can't go in with a scalpel and say, well, we know more about science. Science has told us more about the universe and everything, so we're just going to slice Genesis 1 through 11 out of our Bible. Well, if you do that, you have to take everything else out as well. So we have to start with the knowledge of God, and that's going to go beyond the cross to include a tremendous amount of detail. You have to go back to Genesis 1. You have to understand God as the creator. Then you have to understand God as a God who is righteous, who has standards, and is the ultimate reference point for right and wrong in the universe. And that's Genesis chapter 2, that he created the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and said, uh, that you can't told Adam you can't eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that that implies responsibility. And you see, you you develop as you go through the scriptures. God progressively reveals to us more and more about who He is. 
So knowledge of God uh, isn't just simply an understanding of the cross, but that, in fact, includes and implies a knowledge of God that begins with the creation and extends through the flood to the call of Abraham, to the revelation of his absolute standards through the Mosaic Law and through the Old Testament. So point number four was knowledge of God must precede reciprocal love for God, and reciprocal love for God is a personal love for God because we understand who he is and we have a relationship with him. Point number five, it is the knowledge of God that motivates us to love God. It is the knowledge of God that motivates us to love God, and knowledge of God comes only through Bible doctrine in our soul. This is why doctrine is a priority. We don't know God unless we know the Scriptures, and to know the Scriptures always leads us to a greater understanding and appreciation about God. Point number six, God knew all about us in eternity past, and it did not diminish his love for us. God knew everything there is to know about you from eternity past. He knows all the hidden, dark crevices of your soul. And no matter how embarrassed you may be, no matter how ashamed you might be of what you've done, what you've thought, what you might do, God knew all about that in eternity past, and it's never diminished his love for you one little bit. The uh, the reverse is also true. No matter how good you are, no matter how wonderful you are, no matter how many good deeds you do or, or how much doctrine you learn, God's love does not increase for you. It is the same because it is not based on who and what we are, but on who and what he is. Point number seven, if you love God, you will also love the word of God. If you love God, you will love the Word of God. If you do not love the Word of God, you cannot love God. If the Word of God and knowledge of Bible doctrine is not a priority in your life, then you don't love God. The two are connected. For example, several times in 1 John we read, If you uh, love love God, you will keep His commandments. Well, to, to keep His commandments, you have to know His commandments. To know His commandments means you have to study the Word. So love is directly related to knowledge of his word, and to know God means you love his word. So the Bible makes it clear that when you know God, you will love God, and that love for God involves a respect for him and for the authority of God. That is why it love for God results in obedience to God. It's a respect for his authority, and it is a respect for what he has revealed in his word. It's a recognition that we are responsible to God in every area of our life. We're not responsible to anyone else, and that responsibility means that at some time in the future we will be held accountable, not necessarily for salvation, but in terms of uh, spiritual life and spiritual growth and the rewards and blessing at the judgment seat of Christ. So we are to grow as believers by means of grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, and what that produces in our life is spiritual maturity. That brings us to one more category of reciprocity, which we want to cover this morning, and that is that understanding reciprocal love helps us to handle unrealistic expectations in life. 
Understanding reciprocal love helps us to handle unrealistic expectations in life. Point number one, many people complain or feel that they have never been loved or accepted the way that they want to be loved or accepted. They've never been treated the way that they think they ought to be treated. And this is a basic problem or complaint that you often find in the psychologist's office or the counselor's office. It's often a complaint or used for justification for all sorts of of unacceptable, if not wrong, immoral, or criminal activity. It's because I was never loved. I was never treated right. And this is based on a, a certain expectation that we ought to be treated the way we think we ought to be treated because, after all, we're all so wonderful. You know, if you really knew us the way we are, you would think I was the greatest person around. But see, we all think that because basic arrogance. Now, unrealistic expectation is a trap that leads to self-absorption. It leads to self-pity. It leads to all kinds of mental attitude sins and creates a trap that leads to fragmentation of the soul. Now, it begins by the fact that as a child or as a young adult, a teenager, or maybe sometimes later in life, we begin to think that we should be treated differently from the way we are. Now, sometimes it's genuine and legitimate. Sometimes people grow up in homes where their parents are failures. Their parents have are, are completely self-absorbed and, and filled with their own self-interest. They have no care or concern for their children whatsoever, never teach their children anything, and never really love their children because their parents are absolute failures in life, and they're either not saved or they're in rank carnality, and nothing seems to, to, to matter to them. And the reality is that everybody has to face the fact that whether your parents were uh, wonderful and mature and understood the word and as perfect as parents could get or whether your parents were complete failures, your parents were sinners. And if you don't understand that, then you are divorced from reality and you're always going to have problems in life. But on the one hand, you have situations where parents are, you, 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 you have a legitimate uh, reaction that you're not loved, and in others it's illegitimate. There are people who grew up in homes where they were loved and treated well, if not spoiled, and yet they think they should have had more. You see, that's the orientation of the self-absorbed soul. That is the orientation of the arrogant person who thinks that he really should get everything that he thinks he should get. He's dictating to God and to those around him how he should be treated. So there can be genuine fault, and there can simply be perceived failure. The solution to this is having a view of reality based on doctrine. And the view of reality is that people are always going to fail us, and whether the failure is real or perceived, you have to come to grips with the fact that there will always be disappointment, and life will never be the way that you think it ought to be, and there will always be problems with people because people are sinners, and you can never base your happiness, your stability, your future, your success, or anything on how other people respond to you. That once you start becoming people-dependent, you have paved the road to self-destruction, unhappiness, and misery. Point number three, unrealistic expectation because you're divorced from reality. You don't, you're not dealing adequately with the fact that people are sinners and they're going to fail. Uh, 
unrealistic expectation in combination with an ignorance of biblical truth destroys the focus of the spiritual life. If you have unrealistic expectations and you combine that with an ignorance of Bible doctrine, then you will uh, be completely out of focus when it comes to the issues of the spiritual life. Unrealistic expectation always puts the emphasis on disappointment and loss. It puts the emphasis on what I don't have, what I missed out on, what people didn't do for me. And motivation then comes to to get people to fulfill your expectations. You want to manipulate people to do what you want them to do or expect them to do. You think that uh, happiness comes from getting them to resolve your disappointments and to fulfill your expectations. If that is your motivation, then that is going to filter through every single relationship that you have. It will affect your marriage so that love becomes not real love, but it becomes a way to manipulate the other person to fulfill your expectations and to treat you the way you think you ought to be treated. Now, unfortunately, that's really the subtext at most wedding ceremonies. It's The husband and wife are standing up there, and they're making their pledge of love to one another. And in reality, they're saying, man, I met you, and nobody ever made me feel like you made me feel. And so I'm going to give you the rest of my life to continue making me feel this way and that's just a prescription for destruction when you get into uh, people dependency you can never have real love so point number four the result of this is perpetual carnality in life and the only solution is confession of the sin of arrogance and self-absorption Point number five, we have to realize that only God can love us the way we ought to be loved. Why? Because God's love is based on his integrity and his immutability. People don't have integrity and people don't have immutability. So if you look to parents, to children, to friends, to love you a certain way, to respond a certain way, then you will always be disappointed. And as a result of that disappointment, you're always going to be manipulating them. You're going to have parents who are going to be manipulating their children to always come over for dinner at a certain time. Or why don't you call me more often? Or why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? And the the result is that they're just parents who are self-absorbed and depending on their children for uh, their self-esteem and depending on their children to fulfill their, their expectation. But children can be the same way. And it's a, cause it's a two-way road based on arrogance. Only God can love us the way we ought to be loved because His love is based on His character and not on who we are or what we do. Furthermore, God's love is not emotional. It's not based on circumstances. It doesn't fluctuate. It is always the same. If you want that kind of love for people, and we do want that kind of love, if you want that kind of love from people, you will always be disappointed and you will be looking, you will be living a life based on people dependency. So it's only by understanding God's love and what it has provided for us that we can in turn have real stability and happiness in life and quit having that frantic search or to, to be loved and to be treated the way we think we ought to be treated. 
Point number six, when you respond to the doctrinal principle that God loves you in a perfect way that never changes and that God loves you the way you ought to be loved, not the way you think you ought to be loved, but the way you ought to be loved, then you will be able to move into spiritual maturity and begin to have a measure of emotional stability and begin to learn what it means to share the happiness of Jesus Christ. The result of that is that it changes the way we relate to other people. That's why John starts off in verse 19 with we love him because he first loved us and then moves to the arena of impersonal love for other people. Now, remember, I say impersonal love because it's not that it's something cold or dispassionate or unemotional, but because it means that you don't have to have a personal relationship with the object of love. When you say, I love you, or you demonstrate love for someone, if it's personal love, that means you know the person. You have a relationship with them. You understand their character, their attributes. You you, you know who they are. But if you don't know them, if it's a stranger, somebody you have no relationship with whatsoever, there's no personal relationship, that is impersonal love. To exercise divine love, it's not object-dependent. It is integrity-dependent based on the development of integrity uh, from doctrine in your own soul. So we have to first love God. Only when we are responding to God's love... And understand, because we understand his perfect, immutable love for us, are we then in a position where we can love other people? Because love always puts us in a position of vulnerability. But when our love is grounded in our relationship with God, then it's not people dependent, and so we don't have to be concerned about that level of disappointment that they won't love us anymore, they're going to do something to it. People are always going to do things that disappoint and hurt us. But when our when our um, when we are grounded in the perfect love of God, then we are able to handle the disappointments, the fluctuations in life. Therefore we are able to genuinely love other people because there is a character built in us that is the character of Christ. That is evidenced by how we treat other believers. This is the point in verse 20. If, third class condition, as an example, if someone says, John writes, I love God. So you have a person who comes out of church and says, oh, isn't God wonderful? I just love him. And then they hate their brother. They're involved in mental attitude, sins of bitterness, jealousy, uh, hatred towards their brother. They don't treat them right. See, hatred isn't just measured by a mental attitude. Scripture says it's by treating them in certain ways. It is not seeking the best for them. So if you claim to love God and don't behave in a certain way towards your towards other believers, then Scripture says you're a liar. That is, you don't love God. It doesn't mean you're not a believer. It doesn't mean you're not a Christian. It doesn't mean you're not saved. It means you just haven't grown and matured enough to really love God. John says, for he who does not love the brother whom he has seen, that is, you have it's, we think it's easier to love somebody who you've seen. But John says you have to start with loving God whom you have not seen. See, the only way you know God is through a study of the Word. You don't know God through personal one-on-one experience. Nobody does. Nobody's had that kind of one-on-one experience since uh, 33 A.D. when Jesus Christ ascended to heaven. 
So we learn to love God on the basis of doctrine. That transforms our soul, and only then are we able to love the brother uh, whom we have seen. And then verse 21, in this commandment, John says, we have from him that he who loves God should love his brother also. So love for God is going to be manifested in a love for other believers. Why? Because just as God has undiminished love for other believers, just as he loves other believers who are failures, just as he loves them despite all of their sins and flaws, we understand that if God loves them, we should love them also because the love is not dependent on who people are or what they do, but it is based on the immutable character of God and on his integrity. And only as we grow and advance in the spiritual life and have that integrity begin to shape our own character are we going to then in turn be able to demonstrate this kind of love to other Christians. That's why it's not a superficial thing. It's not something that just happens. It's not feeling a certain way about people. It's not standing up in church and putting your armor on somebody and saying, I love you, and, and all of the sentimental, silly things that happen in churches. That's not what the Bible is talking about. And when we reduce it to that, we're doing, you know, that comes close to, to blasphemy of the Scriptures because we are treating it so lightly, and that's really what uh, the commandment means in the Old Testament, not to take God's name in vain. It means not to treat God lightly. And when we reduce love to that kind of simpering sentimentality, what we're doing is we are taking God's word uh, lightly. So we have to learn to love God and respond to his love in reciprocity before we can learn to have impersonal love to other believers. And notice I'm making a distinction between impersonal love for other believers and impersonal love to all mankind. The Old Testament model was that we were to love our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus upped the ante when he said you're to love one another, that's other believers, love one another as I have loved you. And the passage here is talking about loving your brother. That's not just another human being. That's another believer. So obviously the subject matter here is believer to believer. It is not an issue of whether or not this person is a genuine believer. If he wasn't a genuine believer and genuinely saved, then it wouldn't be a brother. It would be a an unsaved person to a saved person. But the point is that how believers are to treat other believers and it flows from an understanding of what Christ did for us at the cross where he paid the penalty for our sins. This wraps up John's major emphasis on love for God and love for one another, which has been a major theme because it is the evidence of spiritual maturity. And spiritual maturity is necessary in order to not be ashamed at the judgment seat of Christ, 1 John 2:28, and is one of the greatest evidences of the believer who is abiding in Christ. And so we go back to the point in verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God, and we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and we have to abide in Christ in order to not be ashamed of the judgment seat of Christ. So with that, we are going to come back in chapter 5 to wrap up this the entire section, and then starting in verse 6, we come to the conclusion in the epistle. 
So we have one chapter left in First John, and I imagine that will probably take three three months or so before we get through that because there's some fantastic doctrine in this last chapter with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, to be challenged by what it means to love you, to be challenged by what your love has done for us, and to recognize that the implication of that is that we are to love one another as Christ has loved us. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their uh, eternal life, that's uncertain of their salvation, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you have to do to have eternal life is to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. It's not a matter of living a good life. It's not a matter of going to church. It's not a matter of moral reformation. It's not a matter of ritual. It's not a matter of any human factor. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So right now, right where you sit, you can determine your eternal destiny. All that you have to do is believe that Jesus Christ died for you to accept his victory over death on the cross. Father, we thank you for what we have learned about your love and about our love for one another. Pray that you would challenge us, that we might press on to that high ground of spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.